Uh, I guess first and foremost, top of mind, people may ask questions about tax reform, so I'll leave that, except to say that uh, I've been there and I've done that. Um, in fact, probably the only person in Congress who's actually been there and done it in a leadership position. And this is a time for us to be bold. It's a time for us to make many people angry at, at the concept, but happy with the result. As a leader, I had to have a lot of people trail into my office and say, we love what you're doing except for our righteous exemption or exception. You cannot possibly take that bait. You have to build a model that makes sense. You have to model it against various sectors and industries. You have to know that there are more winners than losers, and there will be some losers in terms of the tax obligation. But generally, all of them are winners in terms of the economic impact. And so when I get into the discussion around tax reform, I tell everybody, I think the, tax, the, the, the decisions around the tax are really not that difficult, right? You've got your, your corporate tax rate target. You've got how you smooth that out for capital deploying pass-through entities. You've got some sense of what you want to do for the middle income and working family bracket to begin that process that needs to continue. That's not the hard part. Then you figure out the offsets. That's when you get into the army of people who will come down there and say, just, we love you getting rid of all these uh, exemptions and exceptions, except for ours. The hard part is having people remain focused on what happens if you do it right. And I would argue that North Carolina in 2013, beginning in 2011, continuing in 2013, has done it better than anyone else. And if anybody's got a better, a better example in this great United States, I'd love to see it. It's sustainable. It created a $2 billion balance and a zero a rainy day fund over the course of two years. The other policies retired $2.7 billion of debt to the federal government as a result of our unemployment obligations. Um, and it's throwing off about $400 million a year in, um, in surpluses each and every year in North Carolina for the past two or three. So what I'm trying to do in player role is, you know, I'll let the propeller heads figure out what the target rates are and the pay for What I'm trying to do is remind the members of why it's critically important to get that vote, to get this economy going. About half the market's probably already factored in some movement on tax reform, half hasn't. If we produce meaningful tax reform, we're going to see that other half of the market start making strategic growth investments, and I think those who have already priced in some of it will up, will double down. We will see an economic result over a short period of time that will make the pressure that we have when we go in that chamber and vote for this a distant memory. It's exactly what happened in North Carolina. Something else I'm working on before I go to questions is uh, immigration reform. The the you would think that after 40 years of failure, 30 years at least, that we'd figure out how to do it differently. You would think that people would understand the comprehensive doesn't work. Simply doesn't work. And again, getting away from the statutes and, the, and all of the, the, the uh, complexities of how you implement immigration reform, it's, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It has to do with creating a transaction where you can convince a sufficient number of members to vote for it. And you can only do that if you start about strategically pairing certain policies that relate to border security, interior security, homeland security, and immigration reform. And then as you move on, you get to a discussion about what are the work needs? What are the, what are the, the labor needs for this country? And how can we possibly expect in a high-growth environment? How can, how, how can you, on the one hand, say, I want to implement tax policy, 
that will allow for a three to three and a half percent sustained GDP growth rate. And, and not use an Excel spreadsheet to understand that the single greatest impediment to sustaining that growth rate will be workforce. I mean, how, how can you not understand that? And how do you get workforce? Well, one, you do a better job of educating people, producing more people uh, out of our institutions. The other one is you have the safety valve of legal immigration. And that gets to H-1B visas, H-2A, H-2B visas, et cetera. But the only way you get to that phase of immigration reform is to prove, prove that you can do something as simple and as no-brainer as getting the DACA problem addressed. Paired with border security. That's what SUCCEED is intended, intended to do. We intentionally did not put border security in our bill because we wanted a separate track to talk about the border and homeland security, interior security aspects. We're moving along that track today. I've said publicly I would never vote for just the DACA fix without a credible border security solution. I'm willing to take the hit that I've got a bill out there that has no treatment for border security because I don't sweat the interim product and the, I think the product that we vote on the floor will be a good balanced bill that proves phase one of immigration reform, the dreamer population, has been addressed. So the first meaningful immigration reform in 30 years. Then we can move on to what I think have to be a the uh, reforms we're going to do for work visas. And I'll leave you with this. The reason why the immigration reform, <clears throat> excuse me, particularly to, to me, the DACA issue is something that was just that we have to deal with because it's top of mind with the public. The president issued DACA in 2012, President Obama. My, my passion is really around the next phase of immigration reform because you're looking at the only Speaker of the House who refused to take 26 weeks of extended unemployment when every other state in the nation, the reddest of the red states, when our unemployment was very high, took that extra money from the federal government to extend unemployment benefits another 26 weeks. We didn't. That was $750 million in the middle of a fiscal crisis when we had a $2 billion budget deficit in North Carolina, and we didn't. We were at 10.4% unemployment at the time, the fourth highest in the nation. And everybody said that by doing that, we were gonna put people on the streets, we were gonna have all kinds of demands on our social systems, et cetera. Guess what happened? In six weeks, we went from 6.4%, or from 10.4%, fourth highest in the nation, to 6.4, which was the national average at the time. Now we're tracking close to the national average. We also, in that time frame, implemented mandatory E-Verify. None of this stuff with, well, we'll do E-Verify, but we'll exempt agriculture workers, which is where the vast majority of illegally present people are working. E-Verify, okay? So we have some of the most aggressive unemployment reforms in the nation. We cut the monthly benefit for unemployment by 25%. We did not extend long-term unemployment benefits. We took the maximum of 20 week, 26 weeks, reduced it to 20, and as few as 13 based on the prevailing rate of unemployment. Right, those, you would all think on its face, those would be reasons to get people to work, right? Then why do I still have job needs that are not being met in agriculture, in hospitality, in building? Why? Because we don't have the resources, either because they're not qualified or not interested. And so I would say to anybody who's hypothetically dealt with these issues at the state level, they should talk to people who have practically done it. And then they would see that those workforce needs are there, and H-1B visa programs, 2A, 2B, J-1, EB-5, go down the alphabet soup of visa programs, are a critical part 
of what we need to provide the labor base to sustain our growth once we get our act right with tax reform and we continue to build on good results with regulatory reform. And uh, those, are, those are two things that I'm working on. I'm working on a few others. I'm on Senate Armed Services Committee, but I don't have to be smart on Senate Armed Services because I have Robert Work Wilkie. <laughs> uh, and what an extraordinary person uh, to have in our office. But um, we've got a lot of issues, but I'm happy to cover anything on the landscape. My committee's of jurisdiction. I'm a Senate Armed Services, Veterans Affairs, Judiciary, Banking, and Aging. Um, and happy to talk about any of those. Happy to take your questions. Senator, I'm not a defense person, so I'm probably going to get the nomenclature all fixed up here, but we're several years beyond the budget deal that really capped the Pentagon. And then we start to read about ship collisions, multiple ship collisions. Where are we with troop readiness and that type of thing? We're, uh, we're going to constantly go into Senate Armed Services Committees and, um, and, and, and make four speeches and, and hammer the military for not getting where they need to be when what we should be doing is go into that Senate Armed Services Committee hearing room and put a mirror down where the witnesses are and ask ourselves why we're in this situation. I mean, we have to have people that have the courage to remove the sequestration. We have to have the courage to remove a lot of the structural impediments that we've created that make things more costly. We have to ask ourselves, how did we get to a point where it takes 10 years and 680-page RFP to come up with the next-generation handgun? My handgun, which is a Walther PPS 40 caliber, I literally, because I'm obsessed that way, can put a blindfold on, break it down, and put it back together in about maybe two minutes, if I can't get that spring position quite right. It's a fairly simple device. Why on earth did you create an RFP that has 680 pages? which the technical spec people say, yeah, but to be fair, only 39 pages are technical specs. And what the hell are the other 640 pages there for? Does the vendor have to read them? Do they have to respond to them? Is there any compliance uh, components to it? So we're not ready. In fact, we're slipping. We're putting people into an operations tempo because of the sheer number of vessels that we have in the Navy and the sheer number of sailors that we have in the Navy. They're working too much too often. We have a, a mindset, I'm the personnel, I'm the subcommittee chair and personnel subcommittee. We, we have this mindset that, that as we move people through the Navy, they, they get a mile wide and an inch deep based on how long they spend in any one position. Uh, we're going to rethink that. This year we're going to at least deal with some of the HR issues that, that are a part of the problem. There were probably human error mistakes made, but, but, but you need to look at what the root causes were. Were they really incompetent, or were, were these series of events that led up to it? Uh, but we've got a lot of work to do. We've also got to recognize that many of the problems that the Department of Defense and the military are dealing with come from one of two categories. Things that we've done that are disabled, or things that they've done. What they do a lot of times is they've, they've gotten into this mentality, they've been there for so long, that they have these practices in place that because they've been there so long, they think they're a congressional mandate, when they're actually a self-inflicted wound. There are these series of policies that have added and added and added, and they need to go through a kind of regulatory reform process, a, uh, a lean design, a Six Sigma process, to go back and say, what's the minimum steps necessary to produce this outcome with the highest degree of quality? Um, that, that sort of basic thinking is generally not in Congress, Absolutely not in Congress, 
And it's certainly no evidence on a systemic basis in the Department of Defense or any of the other agencies in my mind. Yes, Scott. Well, Senator, I wanted to say, you know, thanks for coming this morning and congratulations on that profile piece yesterday. I love the focus on outcomes and, yeah. and, and results, but kind of with that as the background, could you just give your view today on the Senatorial Committee and how you see the year or so the, the challenge? Yeah. But you know, I, I, and that, uh, that that was a podcast. That article came from a podcast that I did on Monday night. And you know, I I, I mean, I don't I don't I don't think it's bragging if it's true. Uh, I would I would defy anybody. All these self true conservative, whether they're a member or they're some talking head on conservative talk radio, I defy any of them to come up with a stack of bills that I could come up with that I've ratified as speaker that are sound conservative policies. So when I hear somebody call me a rhino, that's why I decided to come up with, I am a rhino. I'm a Republican in need of outcomes, and I've produced a lot of them. And so find, you know, sit me around a table with people, that, and I, we'll, we'll be fair, just maybe only a third of what I did. We'll sit around the table and how we did it. But that's the reality, whether it's tax reform, judicial reform, Second Amendment, pro-life. So I feel very strongly that people need to buy into this point be, in, be for outcomes. You want to be a talking head, that's great. But if you haven't produced a result, I'll guarantee you, you'd have never been hired by me at Price Waterhouse or at IBM. <laughs> right? Now, speaking of results, 2018. I think that if we produce tax reform, we're going to have an extraordinarily good year next year. I think we're going to see the green shoots of economic activity that are going to that are going to make people forget about all the sausage making that we've done over the last nine months. We've had some great results. I mean, the arbitration rule the other night was another good example of it. all of the resolutions of disapproval, all the actions the president's taken around regulatory reform. We get tax reform done. We've got a good product that I think people will buy. And I think that that puts us in play uh, in as many as eight or ten states next year. Um, those happen to be the 10 states that Trump won, five of which were by 17 points or more. And at least half of those states, the president is still doing very, very well. And so, and I think he can do well in others if we get this lift of uh, tax reform done. If we don't get tax reform done, uh, for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, winter is coming. <laughs> uh, the Ice Walkers are going to breach the uh, the wall. And you better have one of those shards of glass that can kill some of them, because they're going to kill a lot of you. Um, we just have to be realistic about that. Uh, I, I, for one, am bullish on the idea that we're going to get tax reform done, and we're going to see a kind of a maturing, shall I say, of the relationship between the two branches up and down Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, if we do that, I think we're going to have a good year. I think we're going to have a good, uh, we've already got a good pipeline of uh, candidates running in states. I think Arizona uh, became a different narrative this week. I, I think we're going to produce an outcome that will make that, that state uh, a likely keep uh, for uh, Republicans, and we've got to focus on Nevada and, and keep Dean Heller here, who's an extraordinary member of the Republican conference. But um, all of that, all of that is going to uh, hinge on the outcome for tax reform. And it doesn't have to be a nine on a scale of one to ten. If it's a four or a five on a scale of one to ten, the first phase of tax reform, you will see significant uh, positive growth as a result of that. And I, I think we can build on that. 
And then 2020 will be even worse because it won't be a favorable year or maps that I'll be running that year. It'll be the most expensive race in, in uh, U.S. history. It'll probably cost about $150 million. It's a purple state. Corey, Corey will probably be just shortly behind that. And uh, those will be the two target states in, uh, sure. in 2020. So we'll be the Jeff Flake and Dean Heller of the 2020 cycle. But it'll be a problematic map, which is why we have to work so hard to make the very best out of this cycle because of the nature of the maps in play. Senator, real quick, last question then. Do you see with some of the announcements of people retiring that are centrist, do you see the rising of a third party becoming possible in 2020? I hope not. See, the, 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 the problem, with, to me, I, I, all I, will, I, I had somebody ask me the, or, or about a month or so ago, I had press say, you know, with all this, I mean, don't, don't you believe we need to get to a point where we're more bipartisan here? I said, we haven't been bipartisan for a couple hundred years. Why should we start now? Uh, as an institution, as an institution, I don't, I think it's inherently undemocratic to just have this sort of universal pink, skate, uh, you know, pink skies and happy flowers. We agree on everything because that means that we're necessarily moving away from our ideological worldviews. I believe in transactional bipartisanship. That's, that's why I believe that, that uh, immigration reform can be done if you look at it in terms of a, tra a transaction. I believe in transactional bipartisanship. I've got people freaking out because I co-signed our uh, original co-sponsor on a bill with Elizabeth Warren. Why? Because it happened to be for military families. Now, I don't care if uh, Leonid Brezhnev was the member from Massachusetts, if he was for <laughs> Military families, I'd be there. Now, that happens to be probably one of the only areas that we could ever possibly be on the same page. Frankly, I don't even get my staff. I told my staff, if you do a vote recommendation on Elizabeth Warren Amendment, I will fire you. <laughs> I pretty much know how that movie needs to end. Uh, but I'm willing to talk with anybody and willing to go to anybody who says, well, how on earth could you possibly work with this person? I'll say, look at the substance of the outcome. I will work with anybody, and I'm proposing transactional bipartisanship. I'm proposing finding the things where we think there's a large enough base to get to a positive vote in the Senate and work on it, and then deal with the people back home who haven't studied it enough or understand it enough and explain it to them. And so, to me, I'm more, I'm more interested in, in creating what I call hippos. I use this with my staff, too. I'm the rhino, right? Um, I want dinos. I want Democrats in need of outcomes, and I want to create this concept that is transactional called hippos, highly independent people producing outcomes. <laughs> now, the other reason I like hippos is hippos are amazing. On the one hand, they look at them, kids have little babies, have toys and stuff. They're one of the most deadly animals on the continent. They look slow, but they're actually pretty fast. They can walk on land, they can swim through water, and if you mess with them, they will kill you. <laughs> so we need highly independent people producing outcomes. We don't need a third party. Got it. <laughs> Senator, we really appreciate your time.